Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, here we are. <laughs> that uh, sounded perfectly like every other episode, didn't it? Yeah. They'll never even know. We don't tell them the secrets. Uh, the, a magician uh, doesn't reveal his or her secrets. The uh, the bullshitting that we've got going on here. Uh, this is a lo-fi podcast. I believe we've made that clear throughout the entirety of our 31 episode run <laughs> thus far. Dude. Um, dude. That reminded me of, like, the Workaholics guys. What's that one guy's I name? Never, I don't know. You've never watched that? I don't know what you're talking about. Workaholics? You've never heard of Workaholics? Is that with Andy Samberg? No! It's not with Andy Samberg. That's Lonely Island or SNL or, or Brooklyn, Reno, Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I always want to fucking call Reno 911 for some fucking reason. I yes. like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is amazing. But Workaholics is really good, too. You should check it out. I like that Brooklyn Nine-Nine was saved by the outrage of its fans. Right. Because that's just like... People were so fucking pissed. Because it's so good. And, like, the cast is just, like, really... It's, like, a very strong ensemble cast. Yes. You know, like, um, what's his name? Like, uh, Brewer or whatever plays the captain. And you always gotta do that while we're recording. Nobody it. can hear it. <laughs> You can, did you, do you listen back to the episodes? Nobody can hear it. Because you can clearly hear it. Nobody can hear it. Yeah, you just keep telling yourself that. (laughs) Joe Latrulio, Latrulio, um, you know, Chelsea Peretti, it's, I I don't remember all their names, but like, um, what's that, the really big guy? What's his name? He's like really good. I don't know, isn't this what IMDb is for? This is what IMDb is for. 
and uh, Alexa. <laughs> no, don't do that because people are listening on their like on their <gasps> devices. That would be dope. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think it's like designed not. What to if she get... like stopped the podcast and was like, right? Yes, oh, masturbator four hundred four. Right. <laughs> oh my god, that's funny. I think um, I made your Siri call you Luigi because I thought it was funny. I never use Siri, like, ever. I know, but I think it'll say Luigi. That's good. That's good because I never Wait, use Wait, why it. is that funny? Why was what funny? Why is Luigi funny? Because I'm trying to, like, make an intro so we can introduce ourselves. I'm trying to make a segue. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, because I, I realized about 30 seconds ago, like, we still hadn't introduced ourselves. <laughs> like... I called, I made Siri called you Luigi. Because I'm actually named Mario. Princess Peach. Oh, oh. my God. My name's Toad. It's so crazy. Um, yeah, my dad named me after himself, Mar- Mario. <laughs> fucking stupid. You know. My dad named his son after himself, though, too. Oh, really? Nick. Yeah, but, no, not Nick. Lawrence. Oh, right, right. You're. But he's not a junior. He's the second. Oh, he's the so the second. Yeah. So fancy. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, that's like uh that's like Steph. Stephen Curry. Technically his name is Wardell Stephen Curry the second. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's the second. Because his dad was Wardell Stephen Curry. But he went by Dell. And then his son is Wardell Stephen Curry, Steph. but he goes by Steph. And of course people would always be like, Oh, Stephen Curry or what was so fucking annoying, they would be like, oh, Stefan Curry. <laughs> like, his name's a fucking Stefan just because he's black. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Wait, do what? your fucking research. Is so, Stefan like a quote-unquote black name? Yeah. You what? don't, well, you don't think so? No. Okay, I'm pretty sure it is. Stefan? Yeah. But it wouldn't be spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N. It would be spelled with an O. That's what also didn't make any sense. We're really starting the pot off like we're on a on a tangent this time. Stefan. Stefan. I'm gonna make a Twitter poll about okay, that. Good. We'll get the results. Do it with the MMT Twitter though, not your personal. Okay, one. Well then you have to. I thought you were gonna make a new one. Oh yeah. Okay, so. Little story before we get started. Uh, I attempted to make us a Twitter, and I did. I had it made. And then I was like, oh, I'll put our birth date in. You definitely told this story. What, on the pod? Yeah, keep going, though. Oh, my God, I'm, like, such a fucking grandpa. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, I, like, decided to put our birthday on there. So, we started in, like, whatever, December 2017. So, I was like, oh, we're, like, six months old. And I just thought, oh, that would be kind of funny. And then it, like, gave it this little pop-up when it was like, oh, do you really want to do this? Because, like, it might fuck up your shit. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then it was it was like, your account is locked. <laughs> you are not at least 13 years old. <laughs> you must send us a fucking picture of your ID. <laughs> Which I've just been too lazy to do. Which is not worth it. I had also never Wait sent a Wait a minute. Tweet. That means we have to make, like, another name. Well, that's what I thought you were going to do. What was at Mystery Murdery Thingy? So maybe we can think of a better one this time. Was it all lowercase? I think so. Does that matter? I don't think so. I'm not a Twitterer. You know this about me. I know. I've never made more than one Twitter account. Well, you've never been, you know, a podcaster before. I guess. (laughs) Or some shit. I don't know. I was trying to think of a good comeback. (laughs) 
So you're Mario. Oh, I'm, I'm oh Chloe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm Mario and you're Chloe. You're listening to Mystery Murdery Thingy. You're listening to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Thingy, 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 thingy. Thingy. Thingy, 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 thingy. Thingy. <laughs> that was awful. It's uh, it's the podcast where we uh, bullshit and then... Uh, we talk about mysteries. Oh, we, and we talk about mysteries and murderies. And thingies. And thingy. Uh, yours is a thingy this time, kind of, right? No. You said it's a straight up mystery. Yeah. What, is that, what does that mean to be a straight up mystery? In my opinion, a straight up mystery is anything ancient and anything that's a legend. Oh, okay. A legend with a basis in reality. Yes. Because we always have to do something. We that's, always try to do something pretty real. That's real, exactly. Yeah. Like, I wanted to do some stuff, but I, like, found them debunked. Like, Atlantis debunked. Right. Skinwalker Ranch was, like, just real enough. Because yeah. there's so many eyewitness accounts. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. Yeah. Um, where and, it really truly is a mystery. And there were, like, debates if the government was, like, in on it or not. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Man. The government, man. We need to talk about more government mysteries. That's true. Well, I kind of want to get back to the story that I did for our quote-unquote episode zero, which... Pat Tillman. Right, Pat Tillman, uh, which, you know, if you were lucky enough to get the email at the very beginning, which is how we started all this, (laughs) sending an email to, like, 20 of our friends, (laughs) um, yeah, you'll have heard that story, but I kind of want to do it again, and that's definitely a government mystery. But there's lots of them out there. Yeah. Throughout the world. Yeah. Governments keeping shit away from us. Um, anyway. So I think you, you should probably go first this time. Okay. Um, okay. So. Okay. Take your glasses off because oh, I yeah. don't like That's it right. when you read That's my right. computer screen. That's Chloe like a thing now. Would, uh, Chloe would prefer God. me to be illiterate. No, I just don't want you reading the story before I say it. That's fair. That's fair. Like, we could just sit here in silence and you read it and we just record your reactions. How about? Hello, silence, mild friend. Uh, I just burped. I'm sorry. I've come to talk with you again. Wow. How, what parody is that? I don't get it. It's a Simon and Garfunkel song. Oh, shit. Okay. Read Damn. a book. Listen to a folk song, Chloe. Wow, rude. <laughs> You're being proud. If I said like, yeah. any like classic rap song, you'd be like, oh, well. <laughs> what? <laughs> what have I ever made that sound in my life? All the time. <laughs> Just do your story. Okay. <laughs> so I got this. Man, Mario and Chloe were bickering like an old married couple. Oh my God. It was so awkward. <laughs> um, All in good fun. Uh-huh. Um, so I, okay, so I got this story from Reddit. Of course. I love Reddit. Um, and it's about something called the Persian mummy. So I don't know if you've ever heard of this, Mario. I have not. Okay. Okay, good. It's got a good freaking twist. Okay, cool. So... Basically, it all starts with a man trying to sell something he shouldn't on the international art black market. Um, After a tip-off, the Pakistan police, this takes place in Pakistan, the Pakistan police officers raided a house in Karachi, Pakistan. Um, A video was recovered 
uh, and it's basically a recording of a um, some guy. His name is Ali Akbar with a mummy that mm. he's discovered that he's d- uh, dug up, and he's basically trying to sell it. Okay. And I think it's got a price. It, it has a lot of price tags on it that it's been like appraised for. But in the video, he says it's like twenty million or something like that. Right. Can't really put a price on a human body. But it still but, is you know. worth millions of dollars. Oh sure. Oh sure. Um, he claimed that it was discovered when an earthquake disturbed an archaeological site in Quetta, Quetta, uh, which is near the Afghani and Iranian border. It's like kind of the it's like a mountainy like desert desert place desert <laughs> it's like a dessert place um there's like tcby you know there's like emac and bolios and then there's like quetta you know tcby yeah that's like frozen yogurt right it's a dessert place froyo's so gross what i love tcby what does that mean again i forget it like stands for something country's best yogurt oh yeah i think it's like from texas i think that's why i like it there's some around i've i've seen some from where i live i've seen some tcb oh yeah some tcb there's one in lagrange downtown lagrange i think okay cool or i might be thinking of red mango have you ever heard of red mango no i only like frozen yogurt if it's fruity (laughs) fruity frozen yogurt yeah like i can't have like chocolate or like cookie and cream like froyo yeah yeah okay anyway we're moving on um <laughs> moving on um so yeah quetta that's where it was claimed to be found so the owner of the house that was raided was a tribal leader named wali muhammad riki um so basically what happened the police the police seized the mummy um they called it a national treasure and and it was this was a big deal this was the first time that a persian mummy had ever been found hmm. Um, according to historians, the Persians didn't mummify their dead. Okay. So it was given to um, the archaeology museum in Karachi. Karachi. I don't remember how Karachi. to say it. Karachi. Karachi. I don't remember how to say it. I watched a documentary, so I like should know how to, how to say all this, but we'll see if I remember. I'll correct you because I, I, I did all that research because for the Benazir I do Budo a lot episode. of reading. Well, I just happened to have done that research for the Benazir Budo episode, no, I so I heard a lot of, you know, Pakistani names. <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, so when they found this, they're like, wow, this is a big moment. It was a very proud moment for um, the archaeologists and the really prominent ones in Pakistan. It was, they called it uh, the discovery of the century. And I'm going to talk about Dr. Asma Ibrahim. And I, I watched the documentary um, from like BBC History. It was called uh, Horizon, BBC Horizon documentary. That's what it was called. Cool. On the mystery of the Persian mummy, and she was one of like the main people that they interviewed and they talked to. So she's the curator of the museum at the time, and she's an archaeologist, and she's the one who conducted most of the studies. So. Here's what here's what we have. The mummified body was in an ornately carved wooden box. In that wooden box was a stone coffin. It was about four feet, it was about four feet seven inches tall. It was covered in fabric that had later hardened, which was uh, to protect it. It had a golden chest plate on the top right where the arms are crossed. 
um, inscripted with the with the same mysterious script that was on the um, wooden box and the stone coffin. It also had a um, golden plated face with a crown of cypress trees, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So um, no one had, like I said, no one had ever seen a mummy in Pakistan before. So this was a big deal. Um, but the weird thing about it was, um, how did it end up in Pakistan? How did the ritual signs of mummification that were unique to only ancient uh, Egyptians, how did it end up in Pakistan? When did it go from Egypt to Iran, uh, to Pakistan? So they also noticed that the internal organs were removed all moisture uh, was extracted, which, uh, according to science, science uh, takes 40 days. It was wrapped in linen cloth, encased in wood, and placed in sarcophagus, just like the ancient Egyptians do. Yeah, but, I was going to say the removal of the internal organs and all yes. that, like complete desiccation, is like very typical of Egyptian mummification. Right? Yes. Yeah. So here's the odd part. Although there were lots of parts similar to the ancient Egyptian mummies, there was also some odd differences. Um, so there were adornments on there that had never been seen on Egyptian mummy, mummies. The script carved with the gold plate and the wooden box was cuneiform from ancient Iran. And like I said, Iranians didn't use mummies. So is it a per- Persian mummified in an Egyptian way? Did Egyptians send embalmers to Persia for, for this? And... Um, so after they're looking at the body, they're trying to look at the identity. So our main girl, Asma Ibrahim, looked at the cuneiform inscriptions and translated it. The inscription claimed that this was the unknown daughter of Persian king Xerxes. Oh. R- R- Rodugana. That's how you say it. Her name is Rodugana. And the inscription uh, translated said, I am the daughter of the great king Xerxes. Moderica, protect me. I am Radugana. So Xerxes uh, ruled over a huge empire about 2,500 years ago from the Mediterranean in the west, India in the east, and then Egypt in the south. So um, the daughter, Rodugana, lived in a city called Persepolis, which is currently in southern Iran. And um, Persepolis is where the king held all of his like celebrations and like functions and stuff like that. So um, it was pretty important. Yeah, I've definitely heard of that before. Mm -hmm. No remains of anyone from the Persian family had ever been found before. Hmm. No one knew much about uh, Rodugana. No one knew how she died, how old she was when she died. Um, And there was some evidence that this was still from ancient Persia, despite there were some dissimilarities. The carvings, the carvings on the sarcophagus matched ancient stone carvings that were seen in the per, in the city of Persepolis. So this is where we get into the ancient art form and why it's uh, a bit a, like a big identifier in this. So ancient Persian art is very specific, and they have uh, very classic symbols that are seen on. Um, everything so rosettes are a classic symbol of persian art um that those were found on the outside there were seven cypress cypress trees on the outside of the coffin and and seven cypress trees on the crown of the mummy and these trees are the symbol of the city of hamadan 
where the king used to have social functions and celebrations. Nope, I messed up. <laughs> Rodugana lived in Persepolis. <laughs> We're going back. Going the city back. of Hamadan. <laughs> the city of Hamadan is where all the social functions, celebrations happened. And that is significant because the seven cypress trees are like a symbol of Hamadan. Okay. So it was on the coffins. Like, oh. So all of these things are strongly linking it to yes. the the Persian culture, you know, there yes. at the time. So not, you know, as opposed to it having been like moved from ancient Egypt to this area, right? Yes. It seems to be endemic to the ancient Persian culture. Thank you. If I could just interject my professorial verbiage for just a moment. Your um, synopsis. That, that is was my a very good synopsis. synopsis. Yes. Um, why don't you read the rest of the story? <laughs> Just trying to help. Okay. Um, the guard Ahura Mazda, who is the chief deity of, uh, I always forget how to say it. I have, I have it like what written out it? phonetically. Rodugana. 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 Um, so the guard Ahura Mazda, chief deity of Rodugana's Zoroastrian religion. Zoroastrian. Zoroastrian religion um, that was also found carved on the box. But still, this wasn't necessarily proof that the Persians mummified their dead. Like, one of the questions was, where's the rest of the royal family? Right. So, um, Asma Ibrahim, she did more digging and found a book by an ancient Greek historian, Herodotus, where he describes in detail how the Persians kept the tomb of the royal family. So he said that they preserved the bodies with cloths and resin and placed them in a sarcophagus similar to the Egyptians. He, like, went to the tomb or something. Hmm. Um, so it's possible, maybe, that Rodugana's tomb had been raided, and that is what happened to all the other ones, too. Um, so eventually, the mummy was taken to the hospital and x-rayed. The x-ray showed that the that the person was older than 21 to 25 years of age. So this was a mature adult besides the fact that it was 4'7". Um, and they, like, talked about, like, some, like, growth on the pelvic bone and how, like, this part is here from ages 16 to 21, but it's, like, not there in ages 21 to 25. And so they, yeah. Um, it also went through a CT scan. The scan showed no internal organs, which was typical of ritual Egyptian mummification. Um, and also, I didn't know this. I learned this fun fact. Because the hands were crossed over the chest, that signified royalty. Oh. So if everything about this is true, then that means the ancient Egyptians must have supplied stonemasons and morticians to the people of Xerxes. And also, that ancient Persian royals were mummified just like Egyptians. But there were more problems as they continued to dig. So um, they went to a specialist of Egyptian mummification named uh, Bob Breer. Breyer. And um, so here is where a lot of the craziness comes out. Uh, so let's start with some important details as to, and like, I'll explain. So, Breyer explains how smart and precise the Egyptians were when it came to embalming. They were professionals. And I think that's also what's so intriguing about them. So, 
and tr- extracting the brain that was one of the the hardest things to do it was one of the hardest parts so what they did was they put this needle and he like in the documentary he like had all the tools splayed out on like the table oh yeah it was so oh god it was gruesome this is the worst dentist i've ever been to right they put okay so they have it he held up like this needle looking thing it honestly looked like a a crochet like mm-hmm, stick but mm-hmm. like pointy like sharp right um so they stick that straight up through the nose to open the nasal cavity then they then he took out this wire looking thing and they stick that up through the, this now open cavity and start twisting it around so the brain liquefies and then drips through your nose like fucking snot it's very smart isn't that nasty oh also very nasty yes like yum <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah yeah that's just yeah Ow. No, Dad. You know who's also? Ow. <laughs> Wait, what does he say? He's like, <laughs> don't start the what? joke if you can't finish it. <laughs> Who played Snape in a, in Harry Potter? And he like recently died. Uh, Alan. Al. Al. Alan. Uh. Fuck. I don't remember. Okay, moving on. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Harry Potter is a prisoner of Azkaban. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Okay. So, um, yeah, brain falling through your nose. Like snot. What a great time. Yeah, I always love it when I have my brain falling through my nose like snot. It's great. It's great, right? It's awesome. So, um, to do... Here's the important part. To do this, they had to break through bone... Uh, specifically the ethmoid bone that leads to the cranial cavity. So they did ca- they did lots of CAT scans. Um, and he showed CAT scans of a regular Egyptian mummy. In this CAT scan, the ethmoid bone in the nose was missing, which is typical. But in the CAT scan of the Persian mummy, the ethmoid bone was still there. So that means the brain was taken a different way. And as they can tell through the CAT scans, that the brain was taken instead through the chin, which is non-surgical and a lot more brutal. Mm-hmm. And the internal organs were removed after the brain and uh, in ancient Egyptian practices. And it's something that must be done quickly because it de- uh, bacteria is released and it decays faster. So what they did in ancient Egyptian times, what they did a small, maybe like, like three-inch incision to take out the organs um but in the persian mummy the incision was in the wrong place um and it also had a larger incision which was like eight inches so the biggest problem was the fact that the heart was missing that was the biggest indicator because the ancient egyptians believed that that you you thought with your heart that it was a sign of your intelligence and that the soul was connected to it so the heart was always kept inside the body hmm. so the spirit can like return back that was like their whole thing for like burying oh interesting preserving bodies because they believed that the soul would come back and like you'd have this glorious afterlife so that's why they would like keep right. the heart in and they'd put all your belongings with you and stuff like that right right and like if the if a pharaoh was dead like the servants and shit were killed too so like right. yeah um so we come to the conclusion that this wasn't done by ancient Egyptians. So who done it? Uh 
the cuneiform was studied closer and missing letters were found and there were also inconsistencies. Furthermore, Radugana is the late, the name Radugana, it's the late Greek translation of the name Wardiguana, which is the original Persian name of Xerxes' daughter. So there's no way that the Persian king would have the name of his daughter described in a Greek form hmm. that wasn't translated until years later. Right. Okay, so, so it's anachronistic. Yes. It must have been made after the Greeks had conquered Persia, which was long after Rodugana had died. Oh, okay. So, our main girl, Asma Ibrahim, did more research, and she looked at the inscription closer under a magnifying glass. Pencil marks were found. Oh, okay. So, like I said, um... We know a lot about Persian art from monuments and from stone murals and the rosettes, which is a, a, uh, a symbol there with their, with their hypothesis is that it was traced from a monument. Um, and lead pencils were only invented 200 years ago. And this was, this was actually the, the princess. It would have been 2,500 years ago. Right. So after carbon dating, it was found that the reed mat the mummy had been laying on was also had been made in the past 50 years. Oh, in the past 50 years. Yeah. Okay, so now we're getting pretty modern, actually. Yeah, it's crazy. It gets crazier. So let's talk about Oscar White Muscarella. Muscarella. We're saying Muscarella. Oscar White Muscarella. So he's an American archaeologist who had been studying at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York um really smart dude he was given he was contacted um he was given four photos of the mummy by an iranian middleman named amanala riggi who was he was all like here's like some photos i got this thing this mummy it's got ancient persian inscriptions on it like are you interested you should you should take a look at this um so he did and so Oscar Muscarella was not only an expert on antique art and archaeology in ancient Persia, but he was also an expert at spotting fakes and forgeries. And he said that he had seen something like this before and immediately noticed in the photograph details in the artwork that were wrong. He said that the Iran, he said that Iran was the place where most forgeries came from. It was very, very common. It was a, that's where a lot of forgeries on the black market start. They begin in Iran. And he had studied many forgeries from Iran. And so he looked at this and had no doubt. He was like, this was definitely, this has come from Iran. Um, so now we know it's a fake. Surprise, it's a fake. <laughs> that's the twist. Um, there's more. Okay. So keep twisting. Of course, poor Asma Ibrahim was very disappointed. Sure. Um, to find that this was just a modern forgery, but she that, had been duped at least for a time. Yes, but that doesn't change the fact that there was a body inside. Oh, that's it's a real body. It's a real body, right? So when radiologists looked back at the CT scan in detail, they noticed that ligaments in the inner ear, all very, very, very tiny. Um, were still intact, which would not have been the case if it was a mummified ancient body. Hmm. So, that being said, this woman must have died recently and then been mummified. Right. So, someone with knowledge of ancient Egyptian mummification practices had taken a newly dead body, 
removed the organs, covered it in chemicals, left it for a month to dry out, wrapped it, put it in a box, all for profit. Oh, my God. So it had to have been done within 24 hours of this woman's death, meaning that it was calculated and it was thought out. They had to have done have some kind of lab or or facility to do it in to take the body to and to perform the operation of extracting the organs right they had to use tons of chemicals are needed to dry out the body you need resin you need bandages you need medical tools and all of this had to be stored somehow um so they come to the conclusion that this could not have been done alone. A goldsmith was needed to beat out the chest plate, a cabinet maker to carve the wooden box, a stonemason to inscribe on the stone coffin, someone who had extensive knowledge of cuneiform text and um, Persian art and Persian customs. So this was extremely premeditated and calculated. They had to find a body, they had to get all this information, and then get connections to sell it on an international black market. So who the fuck are these people? Who is this woman? Where did she come from? So that's the mystery. So what they needed was an autopsy. Professor, this is where Professor Chris Milroy, who is a forensic pathologist, comes into the screen. The story he forensic pathologists are like the coolest fucking people. <laughs> like I don't know, I just feel like that's like the coolest job. Yeah, you get to just like okay, now you solve the murder. <laughs> like look at that body and just like okay, tell us what happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, go on. Um, <laughs> so he did Sorry, the, I just had, had to give my two cents. He did the autopsy, and in order to do the autopsy, they had to open it. They had to cut through the material. And what I liked that they talked about in the di- uh, documentary, that at this point, um, uh, Asma Ibrahim was like, I don't care, I want justice for this person. So, like, because, like, some archaeologists were like, you oh my gosh, like, you want to, don't you want to preserve that and this and other thing? But, but like, she was, like, the, the curator of the museum that, like, owned it. And she was like, no, like, we need justice. Like, we, I want to know what's going on here. Right. Um, so they cut through the outer material, and in the documentary, they show this, like, cool footage of them with those, like, saws that you use to cut off, like, casts and shit. Oh. It was like, and they're, like, cutting straight. Oh my god, it was crazy. Oh. Um, a tuft of blonde hair was seen, and... So once they got this autopsy, they noticed that the spine was out of alignment. Her back was broken, which had come from a blow to the lower spine. And it it was a blunt injury instead of a sharp one. So that begs the question, was this murder? Limbs and fingers were bound separately, as the Egyptians had done. Um, And then after the bandages were removed, they could see that the hair was gray with blonde tips, but darker at the roots so they think that it was possibly bleached um and here's the weird part they packed her body with drying chemicals with sodium bicarbonate and sodium chloride freaking table salt um so samples of bone and tissue were taken and sent to the lab for testing for carbon dating and it showed that this woman had died in 1996 wow Four years ago. Oh my god. Yeah, four years before the like the body the mummy was discovered. Oh, it's just like chilling. Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah. So another scan without the bandages was done of just the plain body, and it was found that her neck was broken, mm. which was the possible cause of death. So it could have been the cause of death, they said, or a cause of um like damage. 
um, right. done by like discovering it and stuff. Um, so she could have been murdered or someone just dug up like a recently deceased body and mummified it. Um, we, we don't know. So there was an investigation and, um, and, and this whole aftermath. So Asma Ibrahim published her report on April 17, 2001. In it, she stated that the Persian princess was, in fact, a woman about 21 to 25 years of age who had died around 1996, possibly killed with a blunt instrument to the lower back slash pelvic, pelvic region, example, hit by a vehicle from behind. Her teeth had been removed after death and her hip joint pelvis and backbone damaged before the body had been filled with powder. Police began to investigate a possible murder and arrested a number of suspects in Balakistan, Pakistan. Baluchistan. Baluchistan. So the body um, was given, ended up being given proper Muslim burial rites, and it was buried in 2008. Since then, two other Persian mummies have been found on the black market, offered for $6 million. They seem to have been mummified the same way. Oh my God. So the mystery lies in this. Who is the victim? Who made the mummy? Was the victim killed specifically for the mummy? Or was it a convenient corpse from some type of random accident? Convenient corpse sounds like a death metal band. But like a shitty one. The convenient corpse. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, what convenient corpse. And they spell convenient wrong on purpose. Like they spell it with K. Right. They spell corpse with K. Right. Like corn. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck corn. That <laughs> sucks. I never really listened to Corn. That's because they suck. Corn was more of a band that my older brother would listen to. Right. That anyway. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, or like a convenient Corn, some some kind of random accident. And are there more victims out there? There's some kind of weird mummy factory going on. What kind of bullshit is this? Human trafficking? Like what the fuck? Who 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 thinks of this shit? Is it like some kind of gang or oh my, it's so bizarre. But yeah, that's the mystery. Cool. Quite bizarre. I so my sources of the BBC Horizon documentary, The Mystery of the Persian Mummy, episode seven of the two thousand one series. Uh info on the Wikipedia page, Persian Princess, and then traffickingculture.org article by Neil Brody. Cool. Yay. That that was a good twist. Like Right? I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> For it to, like, you know, I thought, oh, maybe it's, like, a hoax from, like, the 19th century or something. But, like, oh, no, it's a person who was murdered in 1996. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. Um, Okay. So, yes. Uh, So, yours did end up being a little bit murdery. Uh, Possibly. Possibly murdery. Uh, Mine is most definitely murdery. Um, yeah, I'm doing the, uh, Chicago Tylenol murders. Okay, I don't know much about this one, despite the fact that it's a hometown. Right, this is essentially a hometown for us, because we're, you know, here, like, an exurb of Chicago, and of course Chloe is from Chicagoland itself. Uh, so this took place, uh, in Chicagoland, uh, back in, uh, September of 1982. Specifically on the morning of... Sorry. Okay. Sounds like there's a rat back there. (laughs) Uh, So on the morning of the 29th of September, 1982, in Elk Grove Village. Oh, I was looking at places there. Yeah, just, you know, a couple hours north of here. 
uh, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman was having a cold. She woke up feeling pretty bad that morning. And she was given Tylenol by her parents because they wanted to make her feel better, of course, right? Um, Unfortunately, it didn't make her feel better. In fact, she immediately collapsed onto the floor and started going into spasms. Uh, The medics actually thought that she was, like, having a seizure. That's so scary. Yeah, and she died shortly after. (gasps) Later that morning, Adam Janis, 27, was at home sick in Arlington Heights uh, from his work as a postal worker. Uh, He took Tylenol and immediately fell into a coma. I didn't know it was fast-acting like that. Immediate. That afternoon, in Winfield, Mary Reiner, 27, bought... Tylenol at a Frank's Finer Foods. She was dealing with some, you know, residual aches after she had had her fourth child. And oh, she. God bless that woman. Right. Uh, also fell into a coma. Oh, man. So, yeah, this is like all bang, 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 bang. Like, I just want to give you a sense of like how fucking crazy this day was, right? The 29th of September, 1982. Wow. In Chicagoland. Okay. Next, at the Illinois Bell Phone Center, Mary McFarland, 31, took some Tylenol, you know, sort of midday, to help her deal with the headache. Because apparently it was just like a fucking crazy day at the Illinois Bell Phone Center that day. Yeah. She immediately fell to the floor in the middle of her office, dead. At 5 p.m. that day, the family of Adam Janis, the second victim were grieving at his house, right? Like, his whole family was there basically, like, having a wake. And, of course, they have no idea why, you know, Adam was was dead at that point. So his little brother, Stanley, and his sister-in-law, Teresa, took Tylenol to deal with headaches that they had, you know, brought on basically by the crying and the grieving for Adam. I know it's, like, really sad. Uh, Stanley then collapsed to the living room floor, while he was being taken out by the EMTs, Teresa also collapsed. So those were like bang, bang. And at about 9 p.m., Paula Prince, 35, a flight attendant from Chicago, bought Tylenol from the Old Town Walgreens, uh, just, you know, like a block away from her apartment on LaSalle Street. And she went home, took the Tylenol, and immediately collapsed dead. Her body was actually not found until two days later. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven victims from the morning to 9 p.m. on one day, the 29th of September in Chicagoland. So, like, yeah, this is fucking crazy. And at first, authorities thought that there must be, like, some kind of, like, toxic gas attack or maybe like just a, a like a deadly disease that was just like spreading you know especially with those three members of the same family all dying yeah. on the same day right yeah. like there must be something linking those but they didn't yet see the linkage between all seven and of course at that point the last victim's body hadn't even been found but there were two firefighter friends who happened to actually solve the mystery that night so, Richard Keyworth from Elk Grove Village and Philip Capitelli from Arlington Heights, you know, they just happened to be two friends, happened to be two firefighters, were just, like, chatting on the phone about, like, this crazy day, right? Yeah. Because they had both been part of the groups that were responding to some of these incidents. Uh, and Capitelli's mother-in-law actually worked with Mary Kellerman, the first victim's mom. 
So he had a personal okay, so connection a, yeah. to the murders, to the first victim. And Keyworth happened to actually have the incident report for Mary Kellerman's death because he lives or works in Elk Grove Village. And uh, he started reading it out to Capitelli. And Capitelli says, like, oh, well, that's weird because there were three deaths from the same family, the Janus family, that happened where I work. And what's actually weird is that the word Tylenol, like the, the mention of them using Tylenol was in all of these reports. So Keyworth eventually says, okay, this is a wild stab, but maybe it's the Tylenol. Yeah. You know, like, well, it's it's kind of just the logical conclusion, right? So they immediately start calling, like, all the different police and, you know, investigators that, that they know and start investigating this, right? But what they didn't know was that at the Northwest Community Hospital where the Janice family was being treated, they already suspected that the family had been poisoned. Okay. And okay. when investigators opened the capsules of the Tylenol from that bottle from the Janice family, um, they immediately knew that it was cyanide. <gasps> They smelled the almond smell. Yeah, because you can smell it, right? Right. They saw that it was sort of grayish mm. to brownish. That it was facts, people. Right. No, know, know what it looks like. Exactly. That, that it was large granules, whereas Tylenol, acetaminophen, you know, which is the active ingredient, right, um, is is a white, you know, fine powder. Yeah. So yeah, um, that that's kind of like the distinction that they immediately knew. Like, okay, this is potassium cyanide. So, obviously, like, the federal police, the state cops, the local police, they all, like, descend upon Chicagoland. Like, okay, we need to, like, fucking get this figured out. Because, like, people are dying from Tylenol. Like, oh my god, can you imagine? In these like, random-ass places. Yeah, exactly. So they set up it's what they like call not, like, one place or anything. Right, right. It's, like, this whole, the whole Chicagoland area. Yeah. So they set up what they called the Tylenol Task Force in Des Plaines. But they also had a separate headquarters at the Chicago PD, um, which may have led to some disorganization in in that initial investigation, you know, into the seven murders. Um, But Tyrone Fanner, the Illinois attorney general, sort of became the face of the investigation. And uh, what you should also know about Tyrone Fanner is that he was both up for re-election at that time and also badly losing to his opponent. So there were some accusations by some, you know, people, some of the investigators that instead of really running like a good investigation, he was just trying to get in front of the camera, basically. And that his sort of ego and politicization of this may have like hampered the investigation. And what also didn't help was the tensions between the federal police and the local police, right? This is like, this always happens, right? This it's It's like a joke in movies, right? Oh, yeah, you know, like, the FBI and, right. like... the FBI shows up and is like, you know, who's running this, uh, running this scene? It's like, well, not anymore. Yeah. You know, now no, I'm... Me, in sir, tra- uh, this is my jurisdiction. No, I started the case. This is my town. Right. <laughs> Classic well, criminal uh, minds. Actually, we have supremacy because we're from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You, you better just step aside. My boss us. called. We got it from here. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> that sort of shit was going on. I'm right? calling the office. <laughs> and, you know, because of these, like, rivalries, you know, not only between the feds and the locals, but also, like, amongst the locals, like, everyone wants to be the one to crack the case, right? So do you think that shit is why it wasn't... It didn't help. Like, who's to say, like, we'll, we'll never really know. 
but it definitely did not help. This is definitely one of the things on my list besides knowing who killed John Benet Ramsey is mm. I want to know who did this. It is one of those like great um, murder mysteries yeah. for sure, uh, which is like truly unsolved. Um, so the police, if they weren't working smart, right, if they weren't working in a coordinated fashion, yeah. they were working, like, really hard, right? Um, like, obviously, like, they all yeah. want to find the killer. That That's part of, like, like, the problem. tragic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what they had to do first, though, was remove all the fucking Tylenol capsules from the shelves in Chicagoland. Yeah. Like, immediately. Yeah. Like, fucking yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> And just so you understand... Did anybody else die after those seven? We'll talk about that. Okay. But just so you understand, like, this is the capsules. So we we don't really see these anymore for the most part, partly because of this incident. But these are the ones where it's like the powder on the inside. And you and it's like weird plastic. It's like a weird plastic that dissolves in your stomach pill that you can kind of take apart. Yeah, those are weird. So just so you kind of understand what's going on here. So the mayor of Chicago at the time, Jane Byrne officially ordered that um, all of the capsules be removed from the shelves uh, on the night that Paula Prince's body was found, which, again, was two days after, so the the uh, 31st or 32nd. So Burns' order, you know, not to mention the fact that, like, seven fucking people had died in this crazy fucking incident, caused a literal worldwide panic about the Tylenol. Hell yeah! All over the country, all over the world, people are like... Freaking the fuck out. Meanwhile, Advil at C, uh, CEO Advil at wait what the at the <laughs> CEOs at Advil are flipping a shit. Well, usually there's only one CEO, and actually I think they were probably celebrating. They were like, "Oh, okay, people aren't going to buy Tylenol. Well, I guess they're going to buy us." You know, ibuprofen. Right. Um, but the Chicago PD, um, what they also did was drove around with loudspeakers. Like, literally warning people, like, don't take Tylenol. So Yeah, because uh, phone beeps weren't a thing. Right. Like, like none, international text messages. <laughs> there was none of that. Because it was fucking 1982. Um, so, how do you think the, the, the it spread then? The what news? Spread? How fast it did? Because you know how nowadays news spread within, within hours? Like, if a celebrity dies, you'll know a couple hours later. You know, I wonder how fast, I wonder how it would be if this happened in modern times. Like, how fast would that shit go viral? Honestly, I don't think that it would matter. This could have been in 1582 or 2018 or, like, 1983. Like, the seven people dying and a common, you know, like, something that people ingest being possibly poison, that's going to get around. Like, word of mouth will spread it. Also, they had the news, they had the radio, they had the police literally going true, around telling true. people. Like, no, like, there, there was no more uh, saturation of information that could have been possible at that point. So I understand what you're saying, but, like, I, I kind of think that, you know, it, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's it, it big, got around. It's big no matter what. This was the biggest news in the world at the time, um, l- let alone, like, in Chicago. Um so Johnson & Johnson, right, the makers of Tylenol, had to respond to this, right? Like, they, they had no... At first, they were a little hesitant, like, about doing a full recall. But, like, the uproar, right, like we were just talking about, like, the number of people talking about this and, like, up in arms about it forced them to do a full recall of all of the Tylenol capsules. Oh, my God. Which, I, I think I remember reading, cost them, like, over $100 million. Yeah. 
and they also offered a $100,000 reward for finding the killer, which, of course, was never, you know, claimed, because they yeah. never did. Um, and it actually became known as one of the best responses to a tragedy of any company in history. Like, th- oh. this is, like, the, the textbook thing. example of how to respond to a tragedy like this. And because what they also did, part of that, like, you know, remarkable response was that they um, started putting tamper-evident packaging, yes. kind of that triple-seal packaging, yes. on every single medication. I, I did read about that, too, and how it made a big difference oh, yeah. in how you package medication and how things are, you know, set up. Exactly. And it led to even more reforms, you know, throughout the FDA, like yeah. more regulations, um, th- this is essentially why we have the kind of like uh, sealing and hermetic sealing and kind of packaging that we have in the modern day. Yes. Like this incident is why all of that exists, essentially. So because of their, you know, really good response also, like miraculously, the market share for Tylenol rebounded within a year. It went from, you know, around 30% down to 8% back up to around 30% within a year. And within a few years, they actually became by far the leading medicine of their type in the market. Yeah, Tylenol is really popular. Tylenol is like default exactly pill, you know like it when you think of a pain pill you think of tylenol yeah the same way when you think of you know uh a um whatever medical adhesive strip you think of a band-aid, Band-Aid. like it's the byword right <laughs> so it's kleenex right kleenex exactly so um while johnson and johnson was kind of succeeding at their response to this incident uh the police were abjectly failing they were fucking floundering they found zero physical evidence ever well, how, to link anyone to the crime. How could you? Exactly. I mean, it is hard, right? Like, they don't know exactly when the perpetrator presumably took the bottles, filled them with cyanide, and put them back on the shelves. Um, they didn't find any, you know, fingerprints on anything like that. They didn't... Nothing. Absolutely no forensic evidence to go on. And they, like I said before, worked really hard at this, right? Like, they weren't slacking. They talked and investigated all, talked to and investigated all the people connected to the stores where the Tylenol was bought, the place where it was manufactured, Mm. the people who cleaned all these places, the distributors, Mm -hmm. fucking everyone connected at all to any of this was thoroughly investigated, including the families of all of the victims. And they found nothing it led nowhere that is so bizarre does that mean it was like an inside thing i don't think that that indicates anything it's it's a void of information yeah uh i mean they got to the point where they were listening to like psychics and like people calling up with just cranks you know um because they were just looking for any possible lead they also again because this is 1982 right they didn't have many security cameras there was no electronic payment system to track the purchases um so they they just really didn't have and much to work with and they didn't even know if it had been purchased the killer might have just stolen the medication and then brought it back later oh yeah so what they did try was publicizing the memorials and the graves of the victims to see if the killer would you know, show up. And they uh, monitored all those locations mm-hmm. for like months and months and months. 
And again, it led nowhere because there's the old cliche, right? The yeah. killer's going to return to the scene of the crime. In a sense, that would be the scene of the crime. So police did, though, eventually get a break when a man named James William Lewis sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding a million dollars or the Tylenol murders would continue. So they thought, okay, I guess we've found our murderer, right, at first. So let's just get into who this guy is for a second, because this guy, Lewis, is a truly bizarre person. Ooh, um, I'm excited. So, yeah, so the, exactly. So <laughs> you should be. So he had actually been evading authorities for several years um, by actually changing aliases several times oh. uh, along with his wife. That's sketch. Oh, and his wife? And his wife. So first, mm. uh, they escaped from, in a sense, Kansas City after Lewis was credibly accused of killing an elderly friend <gasps> and then dismembering the friend, <gasps> oh putting God. him in a bag, and what then the hoisting fuck? him up into the attic of the friend's house. What the fuck? Where he wasn't found for weeks and weeks later. And Lewis did a lot of weird things in this incident. He put a note on the friend's door saying that he was, like, away and not to worry or something. Um, he, like, weirdly showed up and tried to, like, explain away the guy's absence. Like, it, it was very strange. Like, it, it seems like he killed this guy. No one knows why. Because they were friends. It was, like, the, again, this, like, elderly guy who was, like, their neighbor. Um, but because the police didn't get proper, uh, you know, paperwork, they didn't read him as Miranda rights... He was let off. He got off on a technicality, essentially. The judge said, you know, the, mm. the police cannot prove their case because the evidence that they found was not obtained properly. So, West and his wife, um, or Lewis, rather, and his wife, I think he changed his, his name. Oh, no, West was the guy who got killed, sorry. Lewis and his wife then changed identities and moved to Chicago in 1981. Okay. Okay. So his wife worked as a bookkeeper while he apparently studied, like, history and economics and philosophy and had sort of highbrow conversations, reportedly, with his neighbors, who said that he was, like, really, really smart. Kind of like a, like a, a genius, but a weird genius, right? That makes sense. He wore, like, shabby suits. I feel like and, that fits the profile. Yeah, and he also would apparently just, like, wait around for his wife a lot, like, waiting for her at the bus stop, bringing her lunch at work, just kind of hanging out. Uh, um, so A little he, dependent? A little dependent. So eventually Lewis did find a job. And again, Lewis is his last name. Um, but he got fired from that job because of his explosive temper, which is another hallmark of his personality throughout his life. Um, eventually he became obsessed with his wife's former employer, a man named Frederick Miller uh, McKehey, uh, after McKehey refused to pay his employees, including Lewis's wife, the back wages that he owed them. Essentially, he wrote them all out bad checks. Uh, Lewis led the charge to get the money back, to recover the money from McKehey, and actually ended up assaulting McKehey during a hearing. So... After these, in this incident, um, Lewis and his wife felt like, okay, I guess it's time to move on again. For whatever reason, they felt like they needed to change their identities again. And they actually moved to New York City on September 3rd, 1982. 
Now, you'll recall the murders occurred on September 29th, 1982. So there's 26 days that separate Lewis and his wife's leaving Chicago and the Chicago Tylenol murders beginning. So Lewis has a pretty good alibi, right? Yeah. Essentially, he was in New York at the time, not in Chicago. So how could he have done this? Pretty good alibi. And what he claims about the letter is that he sent the letter to Johnson & Johnson pretending to be the killer as part of sort of an elaborate scheme to expose McKay's wrongdoing. So essentially what he did was he said... He's still hooked up on this He was still very... To the end of his days, he's going to be obsessed with, like, this guy McKay and and some other people. Like, this is a guy who holds a fucking grudge. And uh, what, what he did was the bank account that he had told Johnson & Johnson to deposit the million dollars into was actually the closed account that McKay was supposed to pay his wife and the other employees out of. So what he figured was, okay, I'll point the feds in the direction of this uh, of this closed account, and that will lead them to seeing how corrupt McKay was, and he'll get some kind of punishment. It doesn't really make sense, right? And Lewis also may not have been totally mentally competent. He, he was uh, forcibly uh, committed at a certain point in his life. Oh. So it's not totally clear like whether he's entirely mentally there at all times. Uh, we just don't really know. Or at least I don't. Um, and he was never charged with the murders themselves. But he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the extortion, right? Which uh, he kind of clearly did. While in prison for that sentence, um, Lewis offered to help the authorities actually try to find the Tylenol murders killer. How could he help? Right. Seems kind of weird as well, right? It's like, okay. And the authorities, they were like, oh yeah, definitely help us. Because essentially what they thought was, oh, maybe he did do it. And that's why he's asking help. Because that's kind of like a thing that serial killers do sometimes, or killers They'll try to, like, assist the police in, like, solving the murder. It's some kind of, like, weird thing in their head where they, you know, it's yeah, kind of like, like the arsonist firefighter, right? It's oh, like you, yeah. you cause the incident and that so that you can solve the incident so that you can be the hero. Uh, I think that may, they may have thought he was kind of in that psychological space. But um, they thought he would kind of, like, unintentionally confess or, like, slip up kind of. But he never did. He also never agreed... Well, he's really, really smart, you said. Exactly. Um, He also never agreed to a polygraph test. Uh, What he did do, though, was he did show the authorities a very plausible way in which one could commit the crime. Essentially, by taking a wooden board, drilling holes in it, uh, the the same, you know, size, gauge, uh, you might say, as the capsules... Uh, and then placing the capsules into the board, using a knife to separate the capsule, and then putting cyanide in the capsule and then resealing it. Since, again, it's those, you know, kind of plastic ones that you can kind of take apart and then, I guess, could carefully, like, reassemble. So the fact that he did that... and it, it, It's very sketchy. It does not look good for Mr. Lewis, right? Obviously. Um, but the prosecutor, you know, with whom he was working, did explicitly say that it should not be viewed as a confession. So, 
I guess we'll have to, again, leave that where it is as a mystery. But uh, Lewis did get out in 1995 and actually ran, uh, for a long time after that, a small tax business with his wife in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and just kind of, like, lived out his days there. Do you think he did it? No. I don't think he did it either. No, it I think he's really, really not. smart, though. But also, like, delusional and, like, just, like, very kind of, I don't know, detached from reality in certain yeah. ways. So there was another um, suspect, kind of the other one I'm going to talk about, uh, named Roger Arnold, who was, like, kind of erroneously accused of the murders by a bartender who, like, overheard him saying something but kind of misunderstood it. So he, Bartenders he, know all. Right. Um, so he was cleared pretty immediately. But he did become, like, super enraged and kind of had, like, a nervous breakdown uh, after this incident and actually attempted to kill that bartender who accused him. Oh, what? But he didn't kill him. He actually killed a different guy named John Stanisha uh, instead, who he mistook for that bartender <gasps> in the summer of 1983. Dude, I've... Every time I hear shit like that, people getting mistakenly killed for somebody else. Right. That is so... I know. Tragic. That is so messed up. Very. Um, And Arnold did serve 15 years for that murder. Um, So the investigation has actually continued, like, up until today, essentially. Um, Just kind of intermittently, like, there was a big flare-up on the 25th anniversary um, mostly the investigation is still focusing on Lewis. He's really the the main suspect that is authorities still are still around? looking at. Um, I think so. I actually don't remember. Um, but nothing has ever been proven against him. The, and, and this is when you were asking earlier if there were any other um, uh, deaths linked to this. There were a number of copycat murders, uh, even after the new packaging was introduced. So in, in 1986, there were some similar incidents that happened in Yonkers, New York. And then in Washington State, uh, later that year, uh, there was actually some tampering that was done with Excedrin, uh, where Susan, a woman named Susan Snow and a man named Bruce Nickel died also from cyanide poisoning. And Nickel's wife, Stella, was actually convicted of the killings. And then there was also a hoax tampering in Chicago and Detroit in 1986 as well that led to a big panic. But obviously no one else actually died in that incident because it was just a hoax. So, yeah, that's the um, the story of the Chicago Tylenol murders. Uh, and like you said, it's, it's one of those just like great unsolved mysteries. So my uh, sources, uh, Joy Bergman at the Chicago Reader. That was kind of my main source. It was like a long form article uh, really getting into, you know, the whole incident, you know, especially into... Uh, Lewis and kind of his story as well. So if you're you're intrigued by Mr. Lewis, I would definitely um, encourage you to seek out that that article. Uh, of course, Wikipedia, uh, the Chicago Tylenol Murders page, um, an article by Adam Hintertower or something. I'm not sure how to say his name. Uh, at Wired, uh, Dan Fletcher at Time, Jonathan Saltzman at the Boston Globe. And then a story by the AP called uh, Tylenol Figure is Convicted. Oh, and I did also watch some um, uh, some news coverage uh, from the time, especially Ooh. in relation to that one in uh, 1986 in Yonkers. So there, there's actually some good, um, you know, news footage out there about these as well, if you want to look that up. So, yeah, those, uh, that was my story. Thanks for listening, you guys. We're um, super appreciative 
Um, we are on Patreon, of course. Uh, Patreon.com slash thingy, uh, where we will be posting more weird news extras. When yeah. we get to doing that, <laughs> we will do it. Um, but for now, I think we've got some weird, weird shit in the news. Weird shit in the news. Weird shit in the news. In the news. Weird. weird. I'm going to go first because I like have it open. Okay, go. So this is fucked. I know I told you a couple of the weird shit in the news. It's not one of any any of those. Okay. So um, this happened in... Stop reading! I wasn't doing Yeah, that. you did! I know you did. I didn't see anything. It's like, it was just like an instinct. Okay, just go. <laughs> <laughs> Stop telling me not to read and tell your fucking story. Okay, so the title is <laughs> Dead Man Found at Adelaide House with a Fruitcake on His Head. Oh my god. So this was in Australia. Australia. And this article is by Rebecca Oak. Pi, OP, um, at like the Australian version of ABC News. Um, it's actually the Australian Broadcasting Company. It's it's a completely different company. Oh. It just happens to be called ABC as well. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. Um, so, a man who was allegedly beaten to death by two friends was found in a pool of blood on his kitchen floor with a fruitcake on his head. A Supreme Court jury had been told. Um, so, Leslie Kevin Talbot and Eldon Wayne Cross, these stupid fuckers, uh, went to court. Um, David Saunders uh, was found lying on his back in his kitchen floor in a pool of blood. Prosecutor Jim Pierce said that Mr. Saunders sustained at least six blows to the head as well as two knife stab wounds to his neck. Oh my God. So this was like crazy, crazy. Jesus. The court also heard that bizarrely, Mr. Saunders was found with a fruitcake on his head. One or the other of the people who killed him placed a fruitcake on his head before they left him for dead on his kitchen floor. Jesus. Yeah. You think that's, uh, you think that's funny, do you? I just don't. Putting, uh, putting a fruitcake on, uh, your dead friend's head, do you think that's, uh, think that's funny? It's not funny. That's what I, I have just to say to oh those people. Oh my god. That's, uh. Super crazy. That's fucked up. Okay, mine's a little more lighthearted. Good. <laughs> My weird shit in the news. Uh, weird shit in the news. Uh, it's from an article by Damien Sharkov in Newsweek. And the headline is, Did the sun go out over Siberia? Russians oh, want yeah. answers for devilry in broad daylight. This was scary. This is a fucking freaky story, y'all. If you live in Russia... And you have heard of any of this, please email us and please tell us what the fuck is going on. Please. So this was in the Yakutia region, which is in northern Siberia. So this is like the northern, northern part of Russia. And it happened over kind of three different small cities, small towns simultaneously. And there were a lot of reports, like a number of people saw this and reported it to authorities. And what it was, was a complete darkening of the sky at just about noon to the point where the sun essentially turned off, according to people who saw it. It looked as if there were like a, um, 
you know, uh, um, what's the word, I'm like, uh, an eclipse, or, you know, as if maybe, you know, a big, um, you know, like eruption like wildfire. or wildfire had, um, you know, gone over the sun, you know, um, put ash over the sun. Uh, so the problems with both of those. Okay, first, in terms of the eclipse, um, when there's an eclipse, there's a measurable drop in temperature. There was none when this happened. Second, in regards to the uh, wildfire theory or hypothesis, um, first of all, you would be able to see a ton of ash in the air, which people did not report seeing. And, um, you know, there would also be like a strong smell, a scent in the air, which also was not reported. So neither of those is really like that credible of an explanation now, the authorities don't really have a good explanation, so we're kind of left a bit with the mystery here, um, but something definitely happened, because, like, a ton of people saw it, and um, we're just like, we really don't know, so, who fucking knows? Is that, what, is that the Yeti? Does the Yeti know? Do you know Mr. Yeti? No, it's just... Scary. Oh yeah, no, it is kind of scary. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think we're probably done, right? Yeah. <laughs> was this a good episode? I think so. <laughs> I feel like it was. It was kind of loose. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess that's good. Um, okay, so it's uh, definitely fascinating. It is. You know, it's it was some interesting, uh, interesting shit. Um, but yeah, again, thanks y'all for listening. We really appreciate it. Tell your friends. Uh, tell all your friends. We're on Patreon. Uh, tell them to yell out mystery murdery thingy in the, the middle of, you know, a crowded bus or, you know, if they want to get up, uh, on, um, you know, uh, I'm just like bringing up an old episode to have the outro here. Uh, but yeah, we really appreciate y'all. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. 
This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.